Hey, welcome to more Orthodoxy, or more Christ, I should say. This is um, a candle dedicated to Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants alike. Today I'm joined by Anaya Fowler-Naman. She is the founder and director of the Aquano Project, a debate, discussion, and ideas forum. She is also a writer, a commentator, and a campaigner. Anaya uses her work to explore subjects in politics and philosophy, with a particular interest in freedom of speech and expression, in democracy, liberty, and human potential. Just to begin then, and I, um, perhaps you can share a bit about your work, your website, and the Equiano Project. Yeah, so obviously, um, the firstly, thank you for the introduction and thank you for inviting me. Um, and so, yeah, the Equiano Project is a very new organization. And um, if I thought about it, you know, last year, I probably um, wouldn't have imagined starting something like this. But I think that um, the organization is essentially there to kind of champion uh, the liberal tradition of anti-racism in contrast to what I would regard as the very kind of um, divisive, identitarian, kind of race-conscious type of um, thinking that has permeated all of the kind of discourse in relation to race um, in really the entirety of the kind of um, Anglosphere in Western society. And um, I, I decided to start it a few months ago at the peak of the Black Lives Matter um, protests when there was a very uh, definitive and kind of authoritative push um, from many uh, layers of society and many um, angles of society to frame Britain in particular as a fundamentally a racist society whose history and, and culture is defined fundamentally by racism and that um, the uh, fundamental interaction between people of different uh, categories of race was one of uh, power and essentially uh, racism and subjugation. I thought that that was wrong on its assumptions and it was wrong on its facts. And I think very few people, unfortunately, um, just because of the vociferous nature of the discourse have been fearful or, or feeling unable to be able to really challenge it, even if they are instinctively or intuitively and feel that the, the narrative doesn't necessarily ring true with what, what their experience of society is. And so I think, um, as I'd already been involved in freedom of speech campaigning, uh, campaigning as you described in relation to democracy and liberty, uh, I guess I, I wanted to use my position to show that there is another way, there is another perspective, and it is also grounded in a um, in a material reality and also a positive future-oriented vision of what our society is and can be. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I just want to ask you a bit about your own background then to get, get an idea of how you came to some of these conclusions. Perhaps you could tell us about um, some of the key events or the key moments in your life that have helped shape the woman that you are now. Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I was born in the UK, but um, I'm a child of Nigerian immigrants to Britain. Um, but I was raised in a single parent household and I often tell this story because I do think it is quite defining in, in terms of my uh, political outlook. Um, on paper, I think uh, many people in my family could tick many um, oppression points, so to speak. But um, that wasn't, that was never, ever, not even in the slightest, the mentality that I was inculcated with. And I think um, from my own experience, I think there was incredible power in just the, the kind of way of thinking that you perceive the world through. And I think um, a lot of that seems to have been massively eroded. Everything is very much about structures and society, but very um, few of the narrative is about kind of personal transformation and what we can do um, as individuals, but with our own families and communities to actually take responsibility 
and, and, and do what we can regardless of the kind of constraining societal factors that exist. So that was very much what um, shaped me seeing, you know, my mother and many of my family members, regardless of um, difficult personal circumstances, being able to uh, triumph over them and still ha have a very hopeful and optimistic and strong vision of the world. And so myself as someone that is very lucky to have been you know raised in a society that um enjoys many freedoms that we all take for granted i think it would be very absurd for me to utilize that position and squander it um to basically uh self-sabotage myself or, or seek to destroy many of the values that uh, many of us take for granted so i'd say my upbringing definitely shaped uh, my political perspective um and also i think you know university i'm actually a, a relatively recent graduate and I think um, I'd, I'd wanted universities to be a space of challenging intellectual pursuits and the, mm -hmm. the kind of search for higher meaning and truth. But unfortunately, it's an incredibly stifling culture um, at the moment. And so I think um, many of these things really made me think, you know, our, our society um, should be a bastion for freedom and, and kind of democracy and liberty, these things that we champion internationally, but we're not necessarily in keeping with them at home. Mm. Excellent. Um, couldn't agree more. So you mentioned your mother and the, the influence that she had. Was there anybody else who has been especially inspirational or influential for you, rather uh, in your personal life or anybody in academia or anything like that? Yeah, um, a few people. I guess I'm generally not the kind of person to um, uh, idealise people in particular, but I, I genuinely do admire anyone really um that has that is principled one and is able to put their head um above the parapet so i've always been um, um admiring of figures you know historically and also presently from various different sides of the political spectrum the obvious examples are actually fun interestingly uh, master the king but also malcolm x despite the fact that many of his um kind of black radical or kind of black nationalist political philosophy doesn't necessarily align with mine um i i um I still admire the ability for individuals to really stand up for what they believe in. And, 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 uh, and so that's been very uh, uh, influential um, to me. But I guess in my personal life, um, I was very lucky, again, um, early on uh, in, in my adulthood, to be around people that uh, uh, were saw actual spirituality, not necessarily religion, but spirituality as a very uh, a fundamental aspect of their life. and, and sought to uh, facilitate conversations about and, and cultivate thinking which saw um, us as beyond just kind of uh, material bodies on this very short earth but actually beings of potential infinite possibility. So I think throughout my life I've been surrounded by very strong people in their thinking and in their being which has um, inspired me to ho hopefully cultivate very similar qualities. Yeah, excellent. So whatever I saw your more kind of autobiographical um, videos and YouTube, you mentioned that's what a spiritual title was kind of interested in that. It reminded me of people like Young and Jordan Peterson and how they are offering a more comprehensive and interesting view of the world. And it suggests a lot of the kind of even new atheists and people like that, perhaps. Um, so that's really interesting. I um, also want to ask you about your kind of background as a Nigerian British woman. Do you have any Christian or Muslim um, more religious um, figures that you've been brought up around and has that affected you in any way? Um, I'd say that it's quite funny because 
uh, religiously, my family are quite uh, diverse. So um, many people in my family in Nigeria, uh, um, in Nigeria um, were actually followers of Islam. And then many of them uh, are Christian and many of them converted to Christianity. And for a short while, um, my mom was a Christian, but then she, she um, left the faith, which might be, you might regard as unfortunate, but, um, <laughs> but um, I think that um, I would say, uh, yeah, I, I guess Martin Luther King is um, very uh, powerful in relation to that tradition. And I think what I really, really like about the kind of Christian humanist tradition, it is both, you know, a kind of rootedness in um, the kind of transcendental elements of our existence, that there is, you know, something beyond um, that we all um, should be able to uh, be under it essentially we are all kind of under this one um you know god and i think that that's incredibly powerful and i think that that transcends any kind of parochial racial sexual or kind of gender identities and we are all kind of um, accountable to that um that um concept of god so i think that's very powerful but also recognizes the power of um human beings mm -hmm. and that um whilst we are on this planet you know we don't know what's after but you know whilst we are here and um, we have agency and we are able to um, within our lives individually and collectively create a much better world that um, inspires people to be the best that they can and that is possible so I think um, obviously the fact that you know Britain despite the fact that it's not necessarily as religious um, overtly as it was before I think Christianity does play a massive um, um, impact in relation to our traditions this whole idea of you know turning the other cheek, thou without sin shall cast the first stone. I think these are very beautiful and profound concepts that actually should resonate with all people, um, regardless of your, um, your, if you have a faith and none. So I do think, um, even if I didn't have religious figures as such um, influence me, I think that religious principles um, have definitely shaped my thinking. Yeah, excellent. So in light then of your excellent recent essays and things like abolishing race, um, I'd like to ask you, what does that mean in theory and practice then? So you touched upon this more universal vision there in Christian humanism. I'd like to just uh, ask you a bit about that. Yeah, so I think um, it's really interesting. So I, I guess I'll first give a little description about how I came to uh, think about this idea of transcending race. And as we've already talked about, you know, generally speaking, I actually, I identify largely as British, you know, I don't actually have Nigerian nationality. I wasn't born there, I don't speak the language, but I still recognize that um, that tradition within my, my heritage. So generally I say I'm British Nigerian, um, but I think, uh, um, I, I think that the, that's how I'd always kind of identify. And then as I got older, um, the concept of kind of blackness started to um, uh, shape the discourse around uh, minority identity um, more profoundly. And I actually often found that um, the, the concept of blackness was problematic for several reasons. One, I think it actually erased the huge diversity and complexity of um, African diasporic populations, whether that is from the Caribbean to West Africa, to Somalia, to South Africa. These are not homogenous groups. They have different relationships with Britain. They have different migratory patterns, cultural habits. And this term black just completely erased all of that. And then on top of that, um, oftentimes, you know, blackness isn't just the color of your skin, even though it's not actually the skin color one has, but um, it's often also came with a prescribed set of characteristics oftentimes it meant you know you you meant you're meant to think a certain way uh, in, enjoy certain kinds of music so it often came with um a stereotype and also um finally 
blackness is only understood in relation to whiteness. So it's often this kind of um, category that's framed in a kind of adversarial relationship with, um, you know, white people. And I think that's problematic for so many reasons. So that's when I, that's what, um, how I started to question it. But as I actually researched, what was really fascinating to me, and I think this isn't really um, talked about as much in the race conversation, the concept of race um, as specific uh, distinct races is a is actually a relatively new concept um, and there's always been peoples you know from different parts of the geographical population regions but this idea of a kind of pure uh, race um, that is defined and, and immutable is is only a few hundred years old mm -hmm. and we've come to have our entire social relations nearly um, shaped by this concept which I think is very divisive you know in America um, something like uh, the average African-American actually has something up to like a third European DNA and, and, and um, interestingly similar um, with white Americans. So I think that um, I think that for me, transcending race. So that, that, that's the kind of theory behind it. But transcending race is um, to me one recognizing um, or having a kind of realization that this concept that um, um, defines so much of our society is neither immutable nor perennial. It is actually very recent, it is invented, and it does a lot of damage. And I don't think that, um, I think that when we um, continue to affirm its meaning and importance, whether positive or negative, we are further um, giving this concept weight and credence, something that has done so much um, damage to um, our common humanity. And so transcending it is one realizing that and consistently arguing against any attempt to instill race with meaning. and and going beyond this category, potentially seeing possibilities of human social relations as us, as just human beings, as individuals that might look different, that might have different heritages and origins. But we, there is no point in this very rigid category, in my view. Excellent. Yeah, so um, even from an Irish perspective, we were brought up with, a, a lot of us anyway, we're brought up with this same adversarial notion of this dichotomy between the oppressor and the oppressed or whatever. And uh, on, only in Ireland, it wouldn't be along skin color lines. It would be along kind of ethnic religious lines or um, nationalist and unionist and stuff like that. So uh, I've seen the, dam the damage it can do in Northern Ireland, unfortunately, and I uh, couldn't agree with you more, especially when you look to the history, like the ideas of um, whiteness didn't include, say, the Irish for the longest time and Jewish people and stuff like that. And now, so if, say, I leave the island of Ireland or even within Ireland now with the global media, you're considered primarily white rather than, say, Irish or more importantly for me would be Christian and uh, even more humanist terms like you're suggesting. So uh, thanks for that, Vanessa. Um, I would ask no, I, I to add, you know, I, I find it is crazy, you know, uh, very recently, as you, <laughs> you mentioned, Irish people, Spaniards, Italians weren't actually considered white, that they were considered, you know, near white or something other than white. And, you know, white people was a very narrow conception of kind of Anglo-Saxon or Nordic or, or, or Nordic in particular. And I think, um, and so, yeah, the, the, what we could now regard in the last 30 years to be a completely self-evident category has had fundamentally different meanings meanings um, throughout history. Excellent. So um, just more specifically then, because it's so much in the news and because they seem to dominate the narrative so much, what is some of your main critiques of Black Lives Matter, whether that be the, the organization as it's laid out with their kind of Marxist principles or whether that be the broader movement and the hashtag? 
Um, yeah, I guess I have several um, critiques. I think there's so much to critique, it's difficult sometimes <laughs> to know where to start. Um, I think, so what I alluded to earlier, again, I think that, um, that they're wrong on their assumptions and they're wrong on their facts. So they're wrong on their assumptions, which is that um, uh, Britain is both racist, there's never been any progress, you know, racism has just taken different forms, essentially, and that um, we can't necessarily uh, go beyond this moment. All we can do is manage uh, relations between different skin colours. That's essentially um, what, what their assumption is. I think that that is wrong. I think that any movement that doesn't recognise the progress that we've made over the last hundred years cannot be taken seriously. You know, we're, we're really in a situation, I mean, even in America, you know, obviously the focus is Britain here, but in America, you know, they had institutionalised segregation. People were literally barred um, from actually entering certain spaces. There were different fountains for different races. To suggest that um, racism essentially is just the same, but it's just, um, you know, now, now it's kind of unconscious bias, I find to be a massive insult, a huge slap in the face for the work that's been done. But in Britain, again, yeah, uh, very few um, ethnic minority people would describe uh, racism to be an everyday aspect of their life. Actually in Britain, more black, um, Jamaican black men in London, they're more likely to actually marry a white woman than they are actually to a black woman. So we're talking about huge um, barriers to uh, intercultural or interracial uh, uh, interracial relationships completely dissolving. Um, so there has been huge progress made. So I think that they're really wrong on this narrative about, you know, essentially everything is just similar, but it's become unconscious. Um, unconscious bias, this ridiculous, mm -hmm. um, uh, this um, ideology that's seeping into so much of the workplace and education. Um, I also think this whole notion of critical race theory, which actually is very influential in the thinking of um, kind of the intersectional theorists and all of these people that, um, in the words of Helen Pluckrow, she says, um, what they regard as, it's not, the question isn't, did racism happen? Is how did racism manifest itself? And I find that very interesting. So they, they and I, I was in an interview and they literally said, racism is like the air. It's, it permeates every level of our society. That is just ridiculous. That is just not true. That is not what most people believe or most people experience. And you can see it's completely ideological. And then the other thing, they're wrong on the facts, okay? You know, when we, when we look at the data and statistics in the UK, in particular, for example, black um, African uh, young people have a far higher educational attainment than um, the wider population at large, and it's different for black Caribbeans. So there's actually huge um, dis um, disparity within ethnic groups. Um, some of the research coming out now is that for people who are out in their 20s, uh, the income, uh, there is no income disparity. So there's a lot of really interesting data coming out showing that actually um, there's actually very little, if not no disparity in some um, elements of society at all. And then the, the two wealthiest ethnic groups in Britain are not white British, it's um, Indian households and um, British Chinese households. So we're talking about a whole conversation that is almost completely divorced from reality. I mm -hmm. think class um, regardless of ethnic group, is one is the biggest determiner of life outcomes. It is not your race. Excellent. Um, I'm curious about. So you mentioned Helen Proclos and people like that. You've obviously James Lindsay, more atheistic people. Um, what are the prospects? Do you think between more liberal-minded non-Christians and um, Christians coming together to combat the kind of crude narrative of the new left? Do you think there's any? Um, 
pitfalls and opportunities that you see is particularly um, important or interesting? I think that, um, yeah, I think that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think that we all have to go back to kind of our foundational principles. I think we all have to go, okay, what, what do we share? Yeah, what, what values and principles do we all share? And I think that very quickly we will find that, you know, whether, whether you're Christian or, or uh, Muslim or, or Jewish, we'll find that at the level of principle, we actually pretty much all share very, very similar um, principles uh, if we're talking about the liberal tradition. And then we have to then ask ourselves, well, how do we best realize those principles? How do we best enable those principles to um, um, shine most within our society? Now, I think that... Um, from a religious perspective, you, you know, someone might say, you know, obviously uh, follow God and follow the, the traditions of the religion. But I think from a societal perspective, if we, are, if we accept the diversity of belief within society, I think that we can all um, come to some broad agreement in terms of what needs to be done. And so even if you may say, oh, that, uh, you know, in a Christian tradition, you need to kind of live a, a, a you need to live a good life. I would say that also. You know, but I wouldn't necessarily say it from a religious perspective. And I think actually what you would regard as a, a good life might be very similar to what I would regard as a good life. You know, um, taking responsibility for yourself, you know, being kind, working hard, respecting the law, respecting each other. And I think that when we talk about these things at the level of principle, I find that we will actually have a lot more in common than than we do differ and i think we can all agree that many of these challenges that we're seeing ideologically counter all, almost all of those principles whether that is um not obeying the law you know we're seeing a collapse of law and order in some areas of america you know that's counter to the principles that both christians and and just um, people that follow a liberal tradition um would would, uh, would share whether that is you know treating each other with kindness and respect even the christian believe that there is a spark of divinity within all human beings i actually believe that too you know i i believe that there is unbounding potential in all human beings so i think that the model in terms of you know taking it from a principled perspective rather than a um, ideological or religious one will find that there is a huge overlap between um, the, the various traditions and um, that are seeking to counter this particular the narrative that we're seeing yeah excellent thank you and i i think that's why um maybe jordan peterson was so interested in so influential for so many people because he obviously focused on the logos and the kind of mythos that's underneath the civilization and talked about that as a common inheritance and that obviously was down in part to the ancient Greeks as well as the Christian tradition. Um, I guess we can share logic, obviously. Uh, so you mentioned this idea of uh, racism being everywhere. There's a secular guy called Jonathan Church who's written some excellent essays about the logical fallacies within the idea of whiteness and stuff like that, which is really good. It calls it a fallacy of reification, I think. And um, then we've also got, I guess, in from my perspective, I'd be pretty libertarian. So there's it's a liberal too in a lot of cases. I suspect um, the notion of the zero aggression or non-aggression principle. So that's obviously meant to be manifested uh, socially and so on. So, but I hope I do hope there is some a uh, long-term commonalities between us. Um, so regarding that more humanistic perspective, then I see. Um, some of these people like Frederick Douglass, um, Booker T. Washington, Dr. King, who you mentioned, 
Are, are there any others aside from Dr. King that you've really researched and you find really um, important for Christians, liberals, and the Western tradition? Well, um, people that personally that I've actually been um, influenced a lot by, yeah, I've actually been influenced quite hugely by kind of more existentialist philosophers. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, that, that's some of the, the thinking that um, has shaped my thinking. So, you know, Sartre, um, Camus, and also actually not necessarily an existentialist philosopher, but also Nietzsche. And I think any thinking that I think centers um, the uh, capacity of the individual um, to be able to um, take ownership of their life, uh, define their own destiny and exercise their own agency um, and, and shape the world around them um, as kind of meaning makers. Um, for me, I, I'm very drawn to any philosopher or, or philosophy um, that champions that particular perspective. Um, I think it is incredibly powerful and not just powerful, I think it, I think it rings true. I think that there, there is almost a universal truth about how you um, end up uh, shaping the world around you. I don't think it's just a cliche. Um, many of these kind of uh, ideas that you, know, you alluded to Jordan Peterson, I don't think that they've become um, so powerful and influential to many of the kind of generation with Jordan Peterson because they're just uh, things that we like to hear. I think that they, they do speak to a very um, universal truth. So yeah, existentialist um, philosophers have, have very much um, influenced um, my thinking. I think that they can uh, um, be important in, 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 in the views of people, yeah, regardless of um, what tradition necessarily you are come from. And I think that is, again, one of the reasons why I'm so instinctively uh, hostile to or instinctively reluctant to uh, to uh, adopt or accept many of the premises that are being pushed by uh, identitarian activists at the moment this idea of kind of racial determinism this notion that you know whether you're white you're destined to be privileged or white fragility all of these things or if you're black you know you're destined to be victimized or oppressed and you need you know another ethnic group or race of people to um, recognize you in order for you to succeed in life. This is such disempowering stuff. This is such demoralizing stuff. How can anyone um, feel that they can uh, take control of their life and, and express their boundless potential when um, the entire societal narrative is that the color of your skin um, is essentially like a, a prison that you cannot escape from. And, and, and so, yeah, any, any ideas that, that center um, the transformational capacities of each human being is something that I, I recommend and support. Excellent, thank you, Anaya. So what do you think about the 1619 project in the US and um, this broader attempt to rewrite history? I don't know whether there's British equivalents yet, but I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> what do you think about that? I think it's, I mean, I think it's an awful thing. Um, I think it is part of a counter enlightenment uh, movement that has um, emerged seeking to uh, essentially rewrite um, the story of Western civilization in order to undermine um, the things that we hold dear. Obviously the 1619 is trying to claim that, you know, America was founded when the first slave arrived, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, that is, uh, again, not true. Um, and I think it's incredibly dangerous. I think they want to uh, reverse and um, essentially dissolve 
the the ideal of America, which is you know the, the land of liberty and hope and, and prosperity, that anyone, regardless of who you are, um, rich or poor, can can make it, and that um, regardless of the fact that it, obviously America was founded on that contradiction of such you know powerful ideals, but the reality of kind of racism, I think that it is you know that project is not complete, that Enlightenment project of America, and that. Uh, must continue and that and any attempt to um, undermine that should be forthrightly um, pushed back against and I think it's um yeah I think it's a counter enlightenment movement and um, with very dark and pernicious intentions and I think we see similar things in Britain with the kind of decolonize the curriculum um, you know why is my curriculum why all, all this kind of movement to try and say anything good and valuable any achievement of Western civilization is essentially um, a product of racism and hate uh, and and it's a, an attempt to dismantle all of those things um i, I think it's a, yeah I, I think it's um i think it, it it really demonstrates to me the level of deep psychological um destruction that that operates under this movement to try and actually um attempt to rewrite our own conception of self as a society through the rewriting of history i think i think that's very dangerous i, I really really do yeah unfortunately i agree <laughs> um what do you think of then dr king and others like that being made into figures centered on this black history rather than a more inclusive or humanist history and the attempt it seems to idolize his blackness whatever the hell that's meant to mean while ignoring his his actual beliefs um, and his character obviously he has a famous quote about the content of your character not the color of your skin but yet people are doing the exact opposite um well, how much of a problem do you think that is and do you do you see that manifest in itself because um from my perspective i see it in schools even the way that history is taught uh, like black history is taught as a kind of ritual to be repeated colin hughes talks about that uh, do you have any thoughts about that yeah, I think um, I, I think I guess you know people um, is a product essentially of, of the time we're living in. You know, yeah. um, people are not defined by the content of their character or, or the words that um, they utter and the contributions that they've made to the you know human history. They're defined by their their race. I mean, you know, in Britain we've had this whole idea of um, removing dead white men or whatever it is from the canon. So whether that's Shakespeare or you know John Stuart Mill or uh, you know, any uh, influential uh, thinker, British thinker that has shaped our society, you know, they're, de they're even trying to define them by their race. And so I think it's, it's just unfortunate, an unfortunate inevitable consequence um, of the kind of hyper-racialized um, thinking. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's an attempt again to kind of limit um, the, the, the scope and, and, uh, and impact of King's contributions by basically keeping him in this framework as a kind of just a black thinker um, or, or a black um uh, a black activist or something like that i think that's very silly i think you know with regards to black history again i, I understand the reason why it was originally created obviously as there, there was a genuine and real um sense that um the contribution of people of African heritage or the African diaspora was being actively excluded from um, what, what was being conceived of, um, you know, as as what created the nation or shaped it. But again, I think if we are at some point, we're going to have to move beyond that. Uh, we can't just say, oh, because of this historical moment, this has to be the thing, the thing that we do forever. Part progress to me is this what I've been talking about this humanist universalist perspective where all of these people are are seen within the kind of canon 
of contributors to humanity uh, and, and we recognize um, the, the important contributions various people have made um, throughout history um, for their contributions. And so I, even if it was created for a specific purpose to recognize people that were being undervalued, it doesn't have to be that way. And actually progress would be um, integrating it into a wider national story, not just a, a race-based history or a race-based um, narrative of, of Britain. Yeah, I, um, I think it seems to me that uh, the idea of post-colonialism as in centering everything around, say, European colonialism, and even then it's only certain European countries and obviously certain people within those countries that were really actively involved in it. But um, it seems to be like, from a Christian perspective, the way we view Christ and the life, death and resurrection as the center of history and it's something that should be repeated. It's now being sort of transposed to the secular version. And I think um, what you said is exactly the right anecdote. So that you are antidote to say, so you actually do tell it as one long linear story and not this repetitive myth, the same point Coleman makes. But um, yet this seems to be very particular too because any actual modern colonialism is ignored or cast off as a, maybe even a byproduct of Western colonialism, so-called. So, -called. so uh, the evils that are perpetrated by people in China and Turkey and places like that are all ignored. Uh, and the sort of dogma is that uh, we should just blame America for all the troubles in the Middle East or whatever. I was wondering what you think about that uh, kind of sleight of hand in particular. Yeah, I think one of the... I think a lot of these people don't actually realize that they are perpetuating the very same thing that they are arguing to fight against. They center Europe and white people in everything in the world, you know, that no, no one can ever be responsible for their actions. No one can ever meaningfully um, change their society or improve their life unless, uh, you know, Europe or white people do a very specific thing um, for them. And again, you know, that's just, that is a form of Eurocentrism. And I, I, it's very bizarre that they don't see that. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, I think it is a very, very much a sleight of hand to, again, continue and perpetuate the same narrative that enables them to to be able to make ex excuses for any kind of horrific or terrible or bad behavior and as you describe there's there's atrocities going on right now and and i don't say this in a flippant way i say in a really really you know deep and and devastating way that there are people that are literally enslaved or being subjugated um, based off of you know what they look like and again this gets completely obscured as we fixate on you know the most minutiae uh, debates about you know uh, race uh, in, in our societies and I think again it's, a, it's an attempt to be able to deflect away from the genuine uh, meaningful harsh realities of what life is like in, in many other different countries and I think I think it's very negative and I think um, one of those things is actually why why the establishment or the kind of politically um, are so fond of Black Lives Matter I think it's very telling how they've lapped it up essentially um, because I think that, that this particular idea this particular ideology um, enables them to exert um, moral superiority over the general population but also to actually deflect attention from the realities of various kind of um, horrific practices that are going on I mean one of the things that happened recently is Ben and Jerry's was talking about uh, had the audacity to talk about you know we need to you know take in migrants from the channel or whatever
Um, what I was saying was that um, one of the things, one of the things that has been really interesting has been uh, the way in which the establishment in particular has been so welcoming of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of identity politics narrative. Well, a lot of us kind of frame the, these movements as radical and, and that they are radical insofar as they seek quite fundamental change of our society, but they're not radical insofar as they actually fundamentally threaten um, the kind of structures that uh, are rigid within our society or yeah. they wouldn't have adopted them or taken them up so easily. And I think um, one of the ways, the reasons why the media, the cultural and political establishment have been so uh, vociferous in their campaigning and championing of um, this kind of identitarian narrative has been because I think it actually suits um, the structures um, and power structures within our society to have a movement that deflects attention away from any kind of meaningful significant change and focuses on many superficial things uh, you know like gesture politics and you know putting a saying black power and black lives matter which doesn't actually do anything and on top of that i think it prevents real solidarity between people if you say that if you divide people by race and say that they're essentially in a kind of competition for resources then that is um not a very uh transformational uh, vision for you know uh, being able to uh, unify in order to forge a better society or, or, or um, create a better vision for society that could um, um, challenge um, structures that are actually um, uh, dividing people. And again, you know, there's slavery, there's extreme deprivation and exploitation going on. Um, it, and many of these companies that are, are engaging in that, but all they have to do is put forward diversity training. <laughs> and that means that they get great points. So yeah. I think, um, yeah, I, I think there are many forces that have a vested interest in perpetuating this very divisive narrative about um, uh, different races. Excellent. Yeah, I think of Nike in particular, didn't they have like slave labor in China? And meanwhile, they're uh, propping up the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And th th there's no sense of, oh, we're hypocrites or anything else. I don't think those um, contradictions really matter <laughs> too much to people, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it, it would, it's funny, but it's also just incredibly sad because I oh, think yeah. that we're in a really unique period in history, you know, whether that is the kind of technological advancements, we have um, unbelievable ways to communicate with one another that is completely unique. We have huge, uh, you know, economic advancement as well as um, many other things that are, that give our generation, these people that are alive in this moment and time, the opportunity to create a very, a much more transformational politics. And unfortunately, you know, we're stuck in this cul-de-sac of, of thinking, which isn't getting us anywhere. And so I, I hope that we, um, we soon realize uh, what we're doing. Excellent. Um, just back to your point there about that they're not really radical. So from a libertarian perspective, the main problem would be um, the police. <laughs> more generally as having a monopoly of violence within society and a lot of libertarians would want to abolish the police but um it wouldn't be to have kind of vigilante gangs take their place or whatever so a lot of libertarians have a plan like to look to the future and how they would do that private security companies and so on and um i think that speaks to the fact that they're these people aren't nearly radical enough and uh, well they're not far-sighted enough too unfortunately in a lot of cases um because as you said there's like a moral failure there if you were to say 
take um, the police out of African-American communities in the States. What damage would that do? I think that was a key uh, part of uh, Kim Klatchik's new advertisement about Baltimore and how the, the people there were genuinely worried, frightened for their safety, and they had a number of children killed and so on in Baltimore and the damage that uh, just abolishing the police sort of willy-nilly would do. So... Exactly. You know, I do think, you know, there are elements that, oh, you know, the Black Lives Matter and the kind of identitarian activism that is kind of radical in so far as it's very damaging. But I don't, in other areas, it doesn't go, as you, as you just alluded to, um, far enough. You know, where we don't hear about the concept of freedom, you know, whether that's economic or individual freedom, there's actually no coherent, meaningful plan to actually economically develop any um, ethnic group, let alone African-Americans or just or, or Black Britons. How, you know, what, how does defunding the police um, do anything to the grotesque and disproportionate levels of violent crime? You know, how does that actually, what's the relationship between those things? Or the fact that, you know, as other people have spoken about, um, African-American kids you ha um, have a disproportionately low uh, literacy and numeracy rate. How does defunding the police have anything to do with that? And so, yeah, it, in many ways, it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't meaningfully look in the face the real problems that people are actually facing. And so that's why it's so unfortunate. Any movement um, or any social justice or social movement that relies on one censorship and curtailing the freedom of expression of others um, which relies on um, dividing people by race and and very simplistic narratives again for me is not one that can be taken seriously i'll be uh, even if i disagree with the methods if if there was a meaningful coherent plan that can be debated about economic development you know real economic development of these communities cultivating um cultural and moral values that um that are uh, prioritize and value um, uh, entrepreneurship, um, a, a strong family unit, responsibility, um, you know, discipline and education, then we can talk about that because these are things that we know help people to succeed in life, but there's nothing on individual personal values that can actually transform people's lives. There's nothing that actually meaningfully improves the economic development um, of communities or even the just freedom of individual or collective freedom of wider society at large is again very uh it, it, most of the things don't begin to get to the root of the issues that we are all facing regardless of race mm, excellent i think a part of the appeal obviously since it's not a logical thing is a moral argument so there's a, there's, an, there's an assumed moral superiority to a lot of people that would be defined leftist for lack of a better word and uh, yet I would like say that it's morally repugnant, the fact that, so they will lie about the statistics, so say the police brutality in the States, which seems to show that Native Americans are like in relation to the population are twice as likely as African Americans to be unduly accosted and things like that. And then the, the percentage points between uh, Caucasian Americans and African Americans is very small, even when you do take into consideration the um, difference between the population, or whenever you relativize it to the population sizes and so on. So, but they're willing to you, to lie about that in order to make a point about their chosen um, avatar group member or whatever. And yet they would never report whenever police brutality is done to say a white American or a Native American or things like that, which is morally just repugnant as far as I can see. And I don't know, but they get away. They obviously get away with it because of the 
control the narrative, yeah. I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's all part of this intersectional hierarchy where, you know, r different identities are in different places at the hierarchy. So essentially, if you are a black woman, you know, you are in regard regarding to them, you know, more authentic, more authoritative, you know, more morally superior than someone of a, perhaps a white male identity. This is their obviously very warped and negative and bizarre thinking. And so that actually ends up playing out in reality, when an atrocity happens, like there was a horrific one called Daniel Shaver, a, a white man um, was brutally uh, shot by police in a horrific way. And I don't think the police was ever convicted of anything. That, that, that doesn't even get a peep in the media because it doesn't fit this narrative. And so when we're really at a point where we are essentially grading um, different lives on their value, and how much we can take it seriously. We're in incredibly dark waters. And this is the unfortunate thing. I think, you know, no one, when people appropriate the language of righteousness and justice, many people, again, who doesn't want to be seen as the moral person on the right <laughs> side of history? You know, so people will veer towards those that are speaking all of these, you know, flowery, lovely language and not really interrogating the substance of it, unfortunately. But actually, this is a lot of the time that what tyrants do, they will appropriate the language that, you know, makes people feel good. But when it comes to the actual acts itself, they're deeply damaging. And when we are accepting or, or giving a platform to any um, ideologue and that is as painting a very certain picture of society we have a responsibility to ourselves to make sure that we deeply deeply interrogate them on on the things that they are are calling for and there's not been anywhere near enough of that in, in relation to this movement yeah wonderful thank you Anaya. so i think that touches upon the tra so-called trans issues and uh, trans activism I was wondering about your thoughts on that. I haven't really seen too much about this issue specifically from you because uh, from my perspective, speaking to what we were uh, going on about earlier, uh, from say a Christian perspective or a natural rights even perspective, you have pre-political rights, uh, say for the, the mother and the child, man, woman, and so on. But in order to have those pre-political rights, you have to be able to define what a man and what a woman is in the first place. So the new trans activists that are attacking people like jk Rowling want to abolish this the, the idea of sex at all and uh, pretend that a biological male is a woman and so on and um do you worry about that from a more liberal perspective and um how do you fear that might play out yeah i think you know liberal this is the way that um there's, this is a kind of very hyper-liberal, neoliberal um, worldview, I think, what we're seeing with the trans activism and even the identity politics, this kind of, um, the erosion of um, any, you know, community or, or any uh, kind of even material reality, you know, that that's not uh, what, what you know I conceive of as a, a progress. Progress is ensuring that we secure people's individual and collective um, freedom, but that does not mean that we deny reality. And I think everything must be grounded in reality because we share reality with each other. And so, therefore, in order to communicate and engage with one another, we need to be able to um, have a, a shared understanding of what what is you know right and wrong what is fact and truth and be able to pursue that in a rational and objective and scientific way and so 
this um that you know i see the trans activism is again very much on the same trajectory as kind of extinction rebellion you know this hyper environmentalist worldview this hyper racial worldview that um again divorces um you know one progress divorces you know objective reality and divorces any ability to have a kind of rational conversation everything's very um, hyperbolic everything's very um intense and, and kind of catastrophizing and so the trans activism um i think that uh, it's uh um, again, a, a very negative uh, manifestation. I think most people are very reasonable. Many people think, oh, you know, if um, you want to wear a certain thing, if you want to uh, uh, call your, change your name and call yourself, and that might make you feel more comfortable, you know, you are within your rights to do that. But that's a very different thing with demanding society, you know, change its definitions of, of widely accepted and, and understood concepts to suit your own personal uh, situation or difficulty. And so, I, yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, you know, it's causing a massive division and backlash. And I, and, I, and I don't agree with that. I think people should wear what they want. They can call themselves what they want and um, express themselves what they want. But that's very different to compelling other people to say what not only they don't believe to be true, but what is actually, you know, factually incorrect. Um, about you know the way that you say you are and so yeah I, th I think it's a negotiation um, I think we have to negotiate with each other in terms of you know progress and change and development I don't think any group of people can just demand it just by virtue of you know saying that they have a grievance um, regardless of what um, issue that is yeah, does, that, does that make sense <laughs> yeah that's good I think my main fear is the the fact that um Obviously, whenever you accept this worldview that might is right and it's all about power and so on, the most powerful player is going to be the state and the state is going to get to define the terms. So obviously, as a Christian, I believe that um, male and female, they've been created by God and they are actually different. You know what I mean? And um, this notion that you can abolish uh, the definition of a woman and have it arbitrarily fall to the state because it's the most powerful player to define a reality as it were and i don't i see that as the logic of the trans activist movement as it were because what else co uh, can you do if you accept the underlying premises that they have only go and let the state the largest player do uh, define the terms and then you don't have children's rights how can you fight for children's right if you can't define what a child is i think this is even um coming into the mainstream now quicker than anticipated because you see uh, with netflix trying to sexualize young children i don't know if you saw the cuties thing that everybody was in uproar about that uh, they were like 11 and it's being sold as you said before by this rhetoric of a uh, becoming emancipated from your family and so on uh, trying to abolish the notion of childhood and um more traditional roles but that's my main, one of my main concerns i don't know what to think about that yeah i mean i i would say that um yeah this is what uh, you know the logical consequence of eroding boundaries um eroding uh, reality means that um you are leaving the space for people that have uh more either opportunist or even quite sinister mm -hmm. um intentions to be able to mold it in in, in the way that that suits them and if they are 
passionate, if they are vociferous, if they are loud, if they are powerful, then they're able to, you know, dominate the space to which that conversation happens. And that's what we are seeing, you know, um, uh, because of the, the kind of level of activism that is so extreme, very hostile, many women are being, you know, um, you know, tarnished and, and destroyed, you know, reputationally for just criticizing it when we saw Black Lives Matter, then oftentimes many people retreat and then the space to which gets um, left to kind of shape the conversation is defined by people that often have the most kind of extremist view. So I think that I, I agree with, uh, with many of the things that you said in regards to the kind of consequence of this disillusionment of the boundaries and this kind of idea that, you know, there's no objective truth of reality ends up, as you've just alluded to, dissolving the boundaries between man and woman, you know, adulthood and children. And I think that that, that is a concoction um, that is, you know, very dangerous. I think there's a reason why we have those boundaries um, and, and they have served a very important function within our society um, for a very, very long time. And yeah, I, I believe, you know, there's male and female. I think that's, that is correct. And I think that um, they are different. And I think um, male and female work in dynamic motion. I think that that's a very beautiful and positive relationship that is um, replicated almost everywhere within nature. And that, um, you know, enables the propagation of our species. And so, yeah, I think, um, I think again, I do think it's dangerous when we when we um, enable any kind of ideology that sees everything through the lens of power, that challenges the notion of objective truth, and categorizes people in a way to to kind of create an adversarial relationship. And that's that's um, a recipe for much of the destruction we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously, I'm trying to be hopeful, and I'm learning a lot from obviously yourself and people like uh, Lindsay and Helen Tuckrose and stuff. But from a Christian perspective, my great concern is whether, according to the premises of materialist humanism, that there can be a universal vision in the long term that goes beyond utilitarianism. One counter argument might be that um, such a moral bind is arbitrary and maybe unsustainable according to those assumptions of philosophical naturalism because the idea of the universe that you have and how things have developed through um, Darwinian evolution that you can't have it. So people like um, Dawkins and the Cephasine will talk about how they do believe in um, individual like kind of freedom and so on but they recognize that according to their own premises that it is an illusion but they want to live it so they sort of have to go along with it if you know what i mean so um i don't know that's that's my skepticism i try to talk to this about like a lot of my friends are secularists so um I try to understand and come to some common agreement that we can so we do have things like human rights and stuff but i don't know whether you need the underlying Christi Judeo-Christian uh, mythos, as Peterson talks about, to in order to maintain that, and a lot the long time so you talk about Nietzsche, like I, in some ways I respect Nietzsche because I think he is very consistent. Because if you do accept some of those ideas, then um, it seems to me that you you do have to go for some sort of an Ubermensch. So we said about the state. I, I, do, I don't see how you can offer a kind of liberal humanism as something beyond merely utilitarian, if that makes sense. And then my friend too, he's transhumanist. So I think uh, transhumanism is the next stage of uh, liberal humanism. 
but I don't know, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that or any pushback. <laughs> a few things. Um, I would say um, I don't necessarily agree that we need a kind of a, uh, overarching kind of religious uh, uh, narrative in order to uh, uh, kind of move beyond this moment. I definitely think that there is a relationship between the kind of collapse of religion um, as a kind of uh, authoritative force within society um, in relation to the kind of uh, the almost new religions that we are seeing where, you know, your identity, your race um, essentially functions as, you know, um, the, the, the underlying shaper of every aspect of your being and that, you know, even the, the whole kind of white narrative, many people like John McWhorter have talked about it functioning very similarly to um, religion. And I, and I, I do think that the relationship, there is a, a strong relationship between the collapse of uh, moral authority from religion and the kind of re-emergence of these kind of hyper-certain, um, all-encompassing narratives. So I think, but I, I think um, because we've seen this emergence, doesn't necessarily, I think, um, uh, mean that religion is the response to them. So I, I do think that we are at a point where it is unlikely that we will come to a society that is a uh, uh, re religious in any kind of uh, uh, way that it was before. But I, I definitely do believe that there is um, a, a kind of like ubermensch narrative or a, a, that type of thinking that can move us beyond a kind of transcendental vision of what humanity can be. There, there is no vision right now or, or, or dominantly about, you know, the power of um, not just in the, in a hyper-individualism that kind of often like um, Jordan Peterson talks about, but a, but a kind of form of collective organization, which um, is greater than the sum of its parts, that in some ways that is what politics is meant to be, the kind of the mechanism to which we kind of uh, shape society, solve the issues that we have and, and, and create a new um, uh, way of organizing society. And I think that that is something that people deeply can believe in and um, deeply can get behind. And I do think that this isn't just an ideal, but we've seen that in in regards to very much the enlightenment and the, and the way in which um those the project of the enlightenment although some of it was grounded in some um christian ideals but many of them um were kind of talking about a universalist vision and it was that kind of liberal project that actually helped to transform and, and change um the way that society was from that um, period of divine right monarchy and so on so i do have a very deep um belief in the capacity of um, us as human beings to be able to to kind of uh, create something greater, uh, and I I think that um, history and, and the, the story of history demonstrates that that powerful and um, potential. But I think again, there's many different stages to do that. I think one again, we we, we have to kind of um, com completely deconstruct all of this horrific uh, identitarian, you know, uh, all of authoritarianism that we are seeing and start believing in ourselves and our capacity. I'm not a transhumanist. I actually, I think transhumanism, uh, I'm not really sure. It doesn't really ring true to me. Um, this kind of, I, th I think, um, uh, again, I think that we've barely scratched the surface of our own being, let alone potentially integrating ourselves with technology. I actually think, uh, yeah, I, th I think that um, we, we, we've barely been able to really meaningfully recognize the power of our own agency um, yet to even be able to think of a transhumanist vision. I think that's very, uh, I think it's, personally, I think it's, it's a distraction <laughs> from 
the specificities of the problems that we have in the present day. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I do actually believe that because I think many people, many of the most impactful, um, you know, thinkers, you know, right now, you mentioned the kind of new atheist movement, but even as you talked about some of these emergent thinkers um, in relation to the debate about race and white politics, many of them don't necessarily talk from a religious perspective. I think, um, yeah, I, I do, I believe in human beings a lot. And I think, you know, there's good and evil in all of us, but um, I think that the change over historical time has ultimately come from um, us realizing our own potential and exercising it. So I'd have to veer towards a more Nietzschean perspective on that one. Mm. I do I do hope there's some sort of a long-term a common ground. I'm still <laughs> skeptical, unfortunately. Because <laughs> um, I just say, like, whenever you say that, I just wonder, like, why one vision over another, you know? Um, it do, I don't see how it can bind universally and be me actually meaningful. I think you need revelation from outside god outside of the system as it were to a uh, actually make it binding and authoritative whereas so that would be like christianity judeo christianity or islam or something for me uh, from my perspective that would make more sense but i do appreciate a uh, absolutely what you're saying and i do hope that there is some common ground and so on but i think uh, maybe part of the problem has been with people like pinker for example who take the parts of the so-called enlightenment that they like and accentuate the positives and ignore all the negatives. Then I wonder how much of the current moment is down to a kind of a pick and choose history where you don't look at what happened in the French Revolution, for example, and people who call themselves Enlightenment and assume that we're such rational beings and are a, we're going to have a wonderful future and so on. Yet here we are now because you've repressed maybe elements that were there, even within the Enlightenment itself that you now have to deal with it as it's hitting you dead on you know what i mean but i don't know <laughs> i really i think that's a really important point there's quite a few points that i want to come back on but I'll, I'll address this one like i i actually think that's a really important point and i've actually mentioned it before i think that one of the flaws of um many you know people that regard themselves as champions of the enlightenment is a kind of failure to recognize or, or realize or or, or come to terms with the the way in which um, the Enlightenment was actually often weaponized um, during that period in order to justify colonialism. You know, it was this idea of kind of bringing civilization to the the savages. And again, so that there was a massive contradiction there. And I think people have been uncomfortable being able to confront that contradiction. But I think that's um, I think that um, and I think. You know, you might you one might say that for christianity or other beliefs that um uh that, that there's there's the principles and the ideals versus the reality of the of human nature and and, and those things that um human beings um are you know whether that is aspects of our, our, our us can be domineering can be violent and vicious and i think that these things are ultimately ideals that we can aspire to I, I, and so i think that then i, I think that that is a, a true criticism in regards to this kind of very uh, 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 rose-tinted view of the way in which the Enlightenment ended up playing out. But again, I, I think that, again, we have to go back to values because people often, again, forget 
you know, the, the Haitian Revolution, for example, um, it was a slave revolt, it, and, and they actually justified what they were doing on the grounds that, you know, the French Revolution, you, you held these ideals of all men are created equal, but you're not keeping them to yourself. Similarly, with um, African Americans, the Constitution um, talks about all of these positive visionary ideas, and it, it's been African Americans that have consistently forced America to look itself in the face and hold itself to its own um, shortcomings. So I think that we have to separate the principles um, and the ideals versus, you know, necessarily the way in which um, humans have been flawed in keeping um, to those to those things. So I, I, I don't necessarily necessarily see um, uh, a contradiction uh, a contradiction there. No worries. I I think uh, to that. Dr. King talked about the American Revolution and the idea of the promissory note that it was yet to be written and so on. So uh, that kind of goes in line with that. Um, back to America then, what do you think of Joe Biden running for president and his choice of Kamala Harris as the vice president? And uh, what are maybe some of the biggest threats for Christians and liberals alike with their kind of radical politics or people like AOC coming through and becoming more mainstream? Yeah, so this is kind of partly um, what I was saying, it, again, I, about why I ne didn't necessarily think that um, um, the answer was religious, so to speak. I think that we have a, a, a complete collapse of politics, a co collapse of political authority, authority in society in general. And I think it will take, um, you know, a deep period of reflection, realisation and then reflection to start creating the kinds of um, uh, not only political language, but uh, meaningful responses to the uh, complete vacuum that we have right now i mean joe biden he is um he, he has no there's no what, what are his ideas you know no one actually knows what what is his defining ideas what is his vision his only view is that he's not trump and i think that particular idea is a complete will will not succeed in my view. I could be wrong, but I think that um, it fails to meaningfully recognise the reasons why Trump came to be elected. Whether or not you agree with his politics or his way of being, I think that um, his election was a manifestation of a kind of sense sentiment, and that was to some extent felt in other parts of the Western world that um, okay, the kind of political establishment had sold uh, many people down the river and disregarded, you know middle america and all of these things and um joe biden hasn't really got anything to say to that not being trump isn't a political ideology it is not a a worldview and it's not it's definitely not going to be able to deal with the kinds of crazy things that are going on in america right now so i think he's lackluster and i think it's a sad state of affairs that the the um, best option um for a potential different idea of what america could be is um in the eyes of some people, Joe Biden, really. So yeah, I, again, it's, it's a huge failure of politics, yeah. massively. Um, again, from a, an Irish perspective, then America seems to have a, an incredibly good uh, classical education system with a lot of potential, but it seems that um, it's kind of far removed from urban communities and a lot of African-American children who are sort of left to the public schools, which really means government schools. So it's just, it's that phrasing again, I think, to make it sound more appealing. Um, plus, the, um, the, the left obviously controls the, those state schools, unfortunately, in places like Baltimore. I was wondering, um, you spend so much time with the Equiano Project, that you're trying to educate people, but you're obviously working against a lot, the whole forces of the media and 
the government and the schools and so on. Um, do you think that there are some working models for more classical or liberal education, uh, say in Britain? Uh, so I know you had Catherine Burblesing on and uh, I had her on this podcast as well to talk about her work. Um, do you have any thoughts about how we might inculcate those ideas into the next generation whenever we are up against so much? Yeah. I think that's a really good question. And I, I think it connects to the earlier point that I made about the failure of politics, because and particularly in regards to the left. So that's why um, the left um, essentially moved into the, uh, the sphere of education and universities, because they didn't necessarily believe that they could win their arguments in the political sphere on their arguments alone. And so that's why we've seen the kind of um, indoctrination essentially going on in schools by um, largely kind of uh, lefty, um, teachers and, and academics and, and people in the media and I think that that's um, um, problematic. Um, I, I think that the model would definitely be you know a school like Michaela's school. I think it, it, it really is and I think it's a non-selective um, school. It's a school that um, um, you know doesn't categorize and regard people solely based over their race it, it talks about you know which the phrase she uses you know working hard and being kind you know there's many different thinkers that go there and speak the kids get to see the potential of what they could be it cultivates aspiration and that you know regardless of where you are from you can succeed and i think that um you know a lot of people talk about funding is always about funding they need more money i'm sure that that could potentially help but I think uh, a sense of leadership and authority within a school really does uh, you know shape the entire ethos and, and give the culture um, a, a real sense of uh, um, um, potential so I, I definitely think a school like uh, uh, Michaela is the way and I, I, I'm a big supporter of free schools I think that I don't I think that if you are passionate if you know your subject um, if you really believe in what you're doing, you should be able to be a teacher. You should be able to educate the next generation. And I think that we need schools that are experimenting, that are trying new things and thinking imaginatively, not, you know, uh, complaining all the time. And so, yeah, the Michaela School, I think it speaks for itself. They had one of the highest results in the country. And I think it's a real amazing testament to um, if you have strong values, a strong ethos and strong leadership, um, in the school then then that's a very uh, is a strong recipe for success but I think more broadly again um, we're, we're massively losing our culture of criticism our culture of critique I, I would really love to see that cultivated much more in schools you know um, encouraging debating um, encouraging young people to actually um, start engaging with some of these really deep ideas that are affecting society and forcing them to or encouraging them to justify their position and getting into debates that should be normalized I think from very very early on um, in order to you know cultivate a sense of active citizenship from from a young age yeah absolutely um thank you for that Anaya. just to close up then i wanted to ask you is there anything else that you're working on now that you still feel a passion to get involved with in the future you'd like to ask about um i think right now again i'm very much this is why i said the thing about transhumanism i'm very much the kind of person that i think I'm, I do think about the future, but I think particularly when it comes to social and political issues, I think it's really important to stay grounded in what's relevant right now. And I think when we keep that kind of specificity, then we're able to very much be active in shaping the way that things go. So freedom of speech and, and um, racial politics um, are definitely something that I, I'm, I'm going to be 
likely focusing on for the foreseeable future. But on a broader standpoint, just um, trying to um, create arguments and, and share arguments that um, do enable people to see this kind of spark of divinity within each of us and, and to not see that our um, potential is stunted by gender, race or any of these uh, uh, categories. So yeah, I've got nothing specific else that I am working on, but the Aquano project is definitely something that is um, the dominant time time uh, consumer in my life at the moment. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time out to uh, speak to me, and you know, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting oh, bless me. Bless you. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>